We have been in Luke 15 for the last three Sundays that I have been here, the parable of the prodigal son. Um, Remember, a parable is a made-up story. Jesus makes up a story, devises a story to make a point. And we have been talking through this for the last three weeks. We'll be here today as well, maybe next week. I'm not 100% sure on that, but uh, we'll at least be in there this week. So if you have your Bible, would you open it to Luke chapter 15? As I was doing some further research and reading uh, concerning uh, this parable, I told you that it uh, probably is the most preached parable of all. But as I was doing uh, some research this week, I found two pretty um, reputable authorities on literature. Uh, Charles Dickens and Ralph Waldo Emerson in their writings have said this is the greatest piece of, uh, this is the greatest story that's ever been written, the greatest piece of fiction. Now don't get upset by that word fiction. It was a parable, a story that Jesus told to be able to make a point. There's been many songs, many other books that are based upon this story of forgiveness, this story of reconciliation, this story of uh, the love of God. And so what we're reading here is, is, is not only famous in the Christian culture, it has a, a fame and a reputation even in secular culture as well. Luke 15 is the passage that I uh, am in. Uh, verse uh, 11 is where I'm going to start. It's the parable that's in my Bible. It's entitled The Parable of the Lost Son. That's probably not a good title for that. Uh, it's more about just a lost son. It's about the father and his actions. It's about the elder brother and his actions as well. But entitled uh, The Parable of the Lost Son or the prodigal as we would know it. I'm going to read it again. I think I've read this for all three uh, Sundays, but I'm going to read it again from Luke chapter 15, verse 11. You have it behind me on the screen. The Bible says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me a share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the, well, first of all, let me say, first of all, as I said two weeks ago, I think, you know it's a made-up story. No dad would have ever done that. Uh, in the context of Middle Eastern culture, people would have just been aghast at the father even considering this. What the father should have done, uh, according to Middle Eastern culture, is take his left hand and smack his son for such a request. And according to Middle Eastern customs and culture, he would have given him what my mother used to call a backhanded lick. Anybody else's mother call that a backhanded lick? I think it was backhanded lick were tough because you get those bones in there with them on the back of your hand, I think. So this is a made-up story. And people would have heard this and said, who would have done that? First of all, who would, have, who would have asked for the inheritance? Because when he asked for the inheritance, it was literally saying, Dad, I kind of wish you were dead. And so the, the father would have been dishonored which is the ultimate thing in Middle Eastern cultures. You, you do not dishonor. You do not lose your honor. You keep respect at all cost, even till today. The culture of shame and honor is still there. So this is rather absurd that the father would, would divide the property between them. And, and remember, as we talked a couple of weeks ago, the elder son got double the inheritance, so he would have broken into three parts. And the elder son would have 
he would have kept two parts back for the elder son and given the younger son a third. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country, which would have been a Gentile country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. That, um, that word squandered is literally the word uh, that is translated in other places, scatter. And we've been talking about gathering and scattering. He just kind of threw it to the wind and scattered it. Just kind of scattered. It's gone. Just flown to the wind. Just as we as a church gather and then we scatter and go to all different parts of Greene County and beyond, he, he, he scattered, he dispersed his wealth. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. And we've talked about that. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17 says, when he came to his senses, and we've talked about that. And I, I, I had breakfast yesterday with a, um, a father in this church who said he is still waiting for his son to come to his senses. And some of you are as well. And we show that as, 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 as the act of repentance here as the younger son. When he came to his senses, he says, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And we spoke about that the last Sunday I was here. Make me like one of your hired men. And hired men were the lowest of the low. Hired men were not slaves in this culture. Slaves were people that were kind of part of the uh, household, part of the oikos is the Greek word for household. And they, were, they, were, they were respected. They weren't, they weren't paid a, a wage, they, but their needs were taken care of. The hired men were literally day laborers. And we still have that in today's society. And you can go down on the street corner someplace if you need to pick up some help, and, and, and a couple of guys will jump in your truck. And they're day laborers. And so when he says, make me one of your hired men, he was saying, make me one of just the, the, the very lowest of, of the low. The very lowest of the low. So he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to become your son. He gives that speech that I'm sure was so well rehearsed as he walked his long way back. But the father said to him, Quick, bring the best robe. Which we've said would have been the father's robe. Everybody's got a best robe, right? Everybody does. If you go to an occasion that warrants it, you guys have your blue suit or your best suit. You women have that dress, or you go buy that dress if the occasion warrants it. <laughs> Who are you laughing about, Clyde? <laughs> and we've said before that this best robe would have been the father's robe. Literally, the word robe means honor. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a garment that speaks to honor. Bring the best robe. Put it on him. Bring a ring on his finger. We've talked about that. Sandals on his feet. Only sons had sandals. Hired men, servants don't have sandals. 
Bring the fatted calf. This would have been the calf that he was saving for special occasions. Fattening him up so when we have a big blowout here, we got enough to feed everybody. And kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. You know, I, and I did some research this week that found literally if a son would have done something to disrespect the father in this honor and shame culture. This, this is so hard for us to understand because it's outside of our culture. But they said they would have literally had a funeral for the son. And they would have taken a pot and they would have broken it into pieces and said, you are cut off from the family and from the community. So maybe that explains this verse a little bit. It says, my son was dead. My son was dead. Now is alive again. So they began to celebrate. What I want to focus is verse 20. Verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Literally, it's not kissed him. Literally, it's kissed and kissed and kissed and kissed and kissed. Literally, the Greek word. It's not just kissed him. It's kissed him repeatedly. There is something in verse 20 that would have made the first century listeners of this story, their mouth drop open and they would have just been aghast. It was that the father ran. They would not have been able to understand why the son would have done such a thing to disrespect the father as to wish him dead and ask for his money. They wouldn't have understood first. That made them all aghast. This story was just full of stuff that they wouldn't have understood. They, there's no way they would have understood the father giving him the money. They specially could not understand the fact that the father ran because in Middle Eastern culture or in first century Jerusalem and still to some degree over there, Middle Age, Middle Eastern men do not run. It is considered beneath them. They have their robes and they kind of have a stately glide about them. Something maybe like a Arabic moonwalk or something like that. <laughs> In this day and time, fathers don't run. And their mouths would have dropped the listeners of this story. Because fathers don't run because fathers wear a robe and if you run when you have a robe on you must now lift that robe up which would be a rather odd sight an undignified sight in and of itself but then when you lift the robe up you expose your legs and we don't understand this I exposed my legs all last week and nobody felt like I, I didn't feel any shame but that was completely beneath a Middle Eastern man in that time or woman in that time, you still see 
in Middle Eastern countries now that, especially for the females, that they, to be unclothed is to be dishonored. And in very strict Islamic homes, you've seen the pictures of only the eyes of the female is covered. So they were covering their honor. And for him, for him to run, he would have had to pick up this robe and do a pretty undignified chicken walk or something like that. And that just don't happen. It doesn't happen to the degree that in New Testament translations into the Arabic language, they wouldn't translate this run. If, if you look back into early translations of, of, of Lebanese Bibles or Syrian New Testaments, you will not find the word ran. They would not translate it because it was so unheard of that the father ran and everyone understood that the father is a depiction of God and God doesn't run. God is almighty. God is in control. And they could not bring themselves to write what was literally said by Jesus that he ran. So they said, hurried. Quickly, the father came. And it wasn't until 1880-something, the Van Dyke translation of the Bible, that the first Arabic translation literally had what it said that he ran. And if you look, look, those worksheets of the people that translated those worksheets are still available. In the first worksheet, they didn't put ran. But they crossed it out in the original, and it came out in the Van Dyke Bible, 1880-something, that it was ran. So it, it, was, it was so unheard of that the father would run. And the translators, knowing that the father represents God, they could not be able to even bring themselves to put that down. Why in the world would God run? And so they changed it for many, 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 many years until 1880-something that he hurried or quickly he came. This is an unheard of thing for the father to be so undignified, for the father to be so shameful that he would hike up his robe show his legs, and run. Now, friends, I know that doesn't translate real well to 2012. But for the people that Jesus told this to, it would have been scandalous. So my question has to be, why did the father run? Why did the father run? Well, I just always thought the father ran because he was excited to see his boy. Okay, I mean, yeah, Christopher comes, comes, been gone for a long time. Running to Christopher would be just and kind of a natural thing to do. Even though I don't ever remember my father running to me, even though I'm, he's, I'm sure he probably did when I was younger. But. Kenneth Bailey is a New Testament scholar that spent 40 years teaching New Testament in Lebanon and Syria and Middle Eastern countries. And he's, he lived there and he's an expert on the culture. And in his writings, he, he, he finally helped me understand why Jesus decided that the Father had to run. 
This son that's come back after he was, has squandered all the wealth, after he had so respect, disrespected his father, so dishonored his father, so shamed his father, this son coming back to the village would have been scorned by the community, would have been ridiculed by the community, would have been verbally scorned. Would have, he, he has been cut off. The very least he would have received as he came into the village was, yeah, told you so. Reap what you sow. In fact, one movie that I, I saw a clip from depicted this, and it, it depicted the sun coming back, and it depicted a crowd of villagers saying, here comes the pig herder, here comes the pig herder. Now, that's not biblical, but it was accurate to what he would have probably received. Here comes the pig herder. The ridicule, the scorn, the embarrassment that he would have to suffer as he walked back into this village. And being a wealthy man, his father wouldn't have lived on the outskirts of the village. He would have lived right in the middle of the village. And so he would have had to walk through the whole village and take in the scorn embarrassment, ridicule, shame that was deserving him in that culture. And the father, seeing him, while he was still a long way off, he wasn't in the village yet, he was still a long way off, the father saw him and ran to him. And the father does this shameful thing To absorb the shame, to take the ridicule upon himself, to tell the community that you don't need to be able to lash out against him. I'm reconciling to him right now. To save his boy from the ridicule and the, the shame and the embarrassment and the scorn that he would have received when he got into that village, the father ran. And no doubt that put his arm around him, walked him back into the village. And this one man who had just been shameful in his conduct walked side by side with the one that should have gotten the scorn. They would have not ridiculed the boy because the father has already taken him back. Why did the father run? The scripture said he was filled with compassion for him. What type of compassion we don't know. Maybe the compassion of just not wanting my boy to have to walk into this village and take what is due him, take what is coming to him. Fathers, you'll, you'll go a long way to save your kids from embarrassment if you can. You don't want them to be shamed. You don't want them to be ridiculed. Christopher's in here, and I'm going to break a preacher rule by telling a story about him without asking his permission to tell him. But he likes when his name is mentioned in a sermon. <laughs> As we were at the beach, some of you that have gone to the beach before, you see these uh, teenagers, or not even teenagers, they have what I call, I know that's not the right word, it's kind of like skimmers, and it's kind of like a, a thin piece of, of wood that is kind of an oblong oval type of shape and and when the the 
a wave comes in, they wait for it to go out, so there's a small little skiff of water there, and they toss this um, board onto that skim of water, and it kind of uh, skiff of water and kind of skims across and the guys go and jump on it and they can, if they do it well, they can take a little ride there for 40 or 50 feet. Well, Christopher saw that and was just amazed by that. Never done that before in his life. I've done it before and fallen every single time I've ever tried to do it. The only thing Christopher had was those fourteen ninety nine body boards that you get at Walmart, you know, that you body surf with and they, that you try to surf some waves with and Christopher and the boys were out doing that. So Christopher grabs this thick styrofoam thing and I saw him throw, well, first of all, styrofoam don't throw very well, especially on a windy beach and it's just going to hit that water and stop. And here these teenagers are right beside my little nine-year-old and no doubt they were going to ridicule him and laugh at him for doing something he didn't know anything better to do. I was laying about, I was laying probably 30 feet away watching all this. Sue was real close building some sandcastles with a boy, and I was doing what I do on vacation, nothing. And so I was just <laughs> laying there, and in my quest still to do nothing, I said, Sue, tell Christopher that that won't work. And then why did I tell him that? Because I just... I didn't want those other boys to say something that would embarrass a nine-year-old because you can't skim with a bodyboard. <laughs> and I, I wanted to stop that, and I didn't want him to do it again because I didn't want my boy to be ridiculed, to be embarrassed, to be shamed. The text says the father ran. And everyone knows that the Father represents God. That God ran. Which brings new meaning to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Do we have that verse, Jeff? Let's fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. He took the shame that was due us. He took the ridicule that was due us. He took the verbal abuse from the Roman soldiers that was due us. And he did a dishonoring, shameful thing when he, God died. What kind of God dies for his creature's sin? The gospel is in Luke 15. What God did for us is in Luke 15. And as the prodigal's father ran to alleviate the embarrassment the shame God did for us when he took the penalty for us took the lashing took the whips took the beating 
took the verbal abuse. The text says, scorning, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. That was due you and was due me. That's what God did for us. And it's all in that little story that Jesus <coughs> made up to try to talk to us about who God is and the great, enduring love, mercy, grace, compassion of the Father God. Let's pray. Father, when we contemplate that the second person of the Trinity literally left his place of honor at the, your right hand, came to a lowly place, to a manger, and then went to a lowlier place, to the cross, for us, it's really, it's, it's really almost beyond us to comprehend that. It's, it's, it's almost beyond a reasonable person understanding that. And that's why we cannot take it just on logic and reason. We take it on faith. That your love for us was so immense, so vast, that you did the unthinkable. You, you took the shame that was due us. So, Father, we, we don't know anything to do or say other than to say, hallelujah, your love is amazing. We don't know anything to do or to say than say, thank you. Save us, Father, from trying to pay that back with some earthly deeds. Save us, Father, from somehow thinking that we can even the score or pay the debt that we owe you. May we be people who just receive the gift that you have given us and allow that gift to change us from the inside out. Take these words now that have been preached from a human vessel. Use them in all of our lives. Use them to bring someone right now to their knowledge of the need for the cross. Use it in someone's life right now to th throw away any supposed goodness of their own that they're relying on and cling only to the grace, the love, and the mercy, and the compassion that you have upon us. Help us never, ever to hear this story again without mentally going back to the things that you have done for us. We pray all these things in the name of the one who endured the cross, scorning its shame for us, the Lord Jesus. Amen.